The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you. That was very affirming. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, if you're new with us or if you haven't been with us in a while, we're in the middle of a series called Reset. So it's January. And I know we're a little late on this. Most of you have thrown your resolutions out the window. I wanted to exercise more this year. I don't think, I think I've worked out once. But the new year is typically a time of year when we're a little bit reflective. When we stop to think, all right, what do I want this year to look like? What do I want my job to look like? What do I want my walk with God to look like? So we want to just, as a church, pause together and reflect together. So if you were out the last two weeks, uh, Pastor Matt did a great job. He walked us through work. How should we think about our calling? What what does God think about our calling? And how should that shape how we approach our jobs? Um, So if you missed those, I definitely commend those two podcasts to you. Check them out. You won't regret it. This week, I have the task of talking about your spiritual life. And I want to approach it from a little bit of a different angle than you might think. So if you were to Google how to be spiritual, you would get a wide plethora of answers. Anything from crystals to waking up early, being more present, going on a digital fast. You get lots of advice. I'm sure BuzzFeed has a list, 33 ways to be more spiritual in 2017. But one thing, if you just boil down all that advice, one thing it all has in common, some of it's going to be good, some of it's going to be bad, but one thing it all has in common is this. It's telling you what to do. This morning, I don't want to tell you to do anything, okay? You don't need good advice this morning. You need good news. So that's where we're going today. We're going to look at scripture and we're going to say, who's God? Who is this God we say we worship? And what has he done? Not what do I need to do, but what has he done for me? How does that shape how I approach my spiritual life? And so we're going one place today. This is the main point. If you don't get anything else today, this is my main point, what I want you to see today. I want all of us today to worship the God who fights for his people with grace and with power. And we need both of those. If, if God is just power and no grace, the only appropriate response to that God is to run and hide when you hear him coming. Fear. I just got, just a side note on fear. I'm terrified of birds, and some of you learned that this week. And so it's not something I'm proud of. I probably shouldn't be sharing it with the congregation, but it's just who I am. I've always been afraid of birds, and I was talking to Tyler this week, and this pigeon just kept coming, and I was was ready to fight that pigeon. But we have dear friends of ours who, um, they have lots of exotic birds. They live in Santa Clarita. That's what you do up there. You just own birds. And... um, they're really thoughtful. Every time we're there, they're, they're really nice about it. But every once in a while, a bird gets out and flies, and I can't even help it. I don't even know. Just the next thing, I'm looking at up at the bottom of the table. Like, I'm just terrified. I run, duck, and cover. If God is a God of power only, we're all me under that table. That's it. We just are, all we can do is be afraid. Likewise, if God shows up and he's just grace with no power, we, we can't be helped. He can just wish us nice thoughts like, hey, Guys, hope hope for the best for you this year. But no, we want to see the Exodus. We're looking at the Exodus because we're going to see God's power and his grace. That's one of the clearest places in Scripture where God shows up for his people in both power and grace. So that's where we're going first. We're going to look at Israel's Exodus and see how God shows up with both of those things for his people. 
His people are in a terrible situation. They have a terrible tyrant. It's a really, it's an awful, awful situation, and they're stuck. And God shows up with both power and grace to rescue them. And then we're going to turn, we're going to turn the camera around to us. What does that mean for us? Well, we're going to look in the New Testament a little bit, and we're going to see how Jesus shows up, and he invites his people to join him on his exodus as he leads his people home. The Exodus is shown from two places, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to be big picture this morning. We're going to look at both of them. Because the Bible is a story. You've heard us say this. If you've been around Story City at all, you know that we love the Bible is a story. It's not, it's not just a list of things to do. It's not just good advice, one thing after the other after the other. It's a story. It's God's story of redemption. It's how he saves his people. So we're going to look at that story. God doesn't just tell us this morning, hey, I'm here to save you. He shows us that. He shows us his power and he shows us his grace in both the exodus of Israel and Jesus' exodus. So we're going those places today. There's a quote that I so wish I had said first. I do. It's by Pastor Douglas Wilson. Maybe you've heard me say this before. He says this. He says, the Bible's a story and if it has a plot summary, a tagline, this would be it. God slays the dragon and gets the girl. God slays the dragon and gets the girl. This morning, we're going to look at that. How does God slay the dragon and get us? All right? So the passage that we're going to be springboarding off of is Exodus 14. I want, I want to read it together and listen. Listen to hear both God's power and his grace, okay? We're going to listen. I'm, I'm going to help you, but we're going to try to see that as we read this passage. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus 14, starting in verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up on the screen. Exodus 14, starting in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done? And we've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and his horsemen, and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea at Piarioth and Baal Safan. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? If we can just pause there for a second. This is a terrible situation. They're backed up against the sea, and the most powerful, most advanced military in the world is closing in on them. And some guy comes forward and tells a joke. Like, this guy deserves to be in scripture. Like, or girl, whoever it was. Like, I would be under the table. This guy's being sarcastic. We just need to give that guy kudos. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not that, uh, that what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. Here we go. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you will never see again. And this, this, is, this verse is where we get our main idea for where we're going today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we dive in, okay? 
Heavenly Father, we just sang some amazing truths, God, that nothing can, nothing can separate us from your love, Lord. God, I pray today that you would open our eyes, God. God, help us to see that we can't do anything to save ourselves, that you save us, God, in power and grace. God, we want to see you and we want to worship you. I pray I would get out of the way today, Lord. I pray your word would be clear. And I pray that your word would transform our hearts to worship the God who fights for us, God. Lord, I am unable to do this, Lord. I need your help. Please show up in power and grace this morning for me. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you can't tell by looking at me, I'm not the most athletic person on the planet. But when I was in middle school, I grew faster than all of my friends. And so I was this lanky, goofy kid. And for a lot of you in here who were lanky, goofy kids, you know where this story is going. <laughs> I was on the basketball team. And there was one winter, I think the year was 1999, I was still in middle school, and my friends, we all got signed up for this uh, like church all-day tournament. And so uh, none of us were very good, but we show up, and we play, and we get knocked out in the first round. Like, we were terrible. But as we're on the way back to the locker room, the team who was on the court beside us, they were a bunch of high schoolers, they are older than us, they lost too. And what this, this team watched us lose, and they were cheering, and they were kind of making fun of us as we were losing, and what they assumed was, they assumed, hey, these guys aren't good at basketball. We can, like, totally make them feel dumb. However, they did not know me and my friends were very sharp and very mean. And so as we're walking back to the locker room, I don't remember exactly what was said, but they started poking fun at us, and me and my friends started being like, well, Captain Air Conditioning over there with all those air balls really kept us cool while we lost. And at first it was like, oh, and ha, 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 ha. But there was a moment, and I think because I was in middle school, I didn't have the social graces to notice when the ha-ha-ha turned to, what'd you say? <laughs> and so I will never forget this. We, we said something, we were pointing, and then all of a sudden this giant of a high schooler stands up, makes a fist, and he comes toward me and my best friend Donnie. And it's just like, oh boy, this is it. This kid, Jacob, valiantly stands up and is like, guys, knock it off. They grab Jacob, and they throw him into the paper towel dispenser, and he hits it and just falls down. And we knew at that point, like, these guys mean business. And so we just, we just pleaded for our lives. Like, please, please, we're sorry, whatever, whatever you want. We're sorry, we're sorry. We're, yeah, we're dumb. You, you guys, you win. And at which point, I just, I won't, I don't remember exactly what he said, but I'll never forget the look in his eye when he just pointed at us and said, if I ever see you guys again, we're going to mop the floor with your face. I was like, okay, you, no problem, no problem. So the rest of the day, we're kind of like walking around. We're sitting there just all terrified. Like, did you see him? No, 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 I don't know. We got Because we're in middle school, we don't have a car. We can't leave. <laughs> so the youth leader, his name is Mr. Bodie. I'll never forget this. He's like, guys, you aren't being your normal obnoxious selves. What's going on? Ah, uh, nothing. We're fine. We're fine. What's going on? So we tell him the story. And he says, guys, we're going to go find them. No, 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 I, they really don't want to see us. Like, this, we're fine. We're totally fine sitting here. Mr. Boy's like, no, 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 we're going, we're going to go find them. So we walk around the gym, and we finally see the guys. We're like, that's, that's him, that's him. So Mr. Bodie goes up to the guy, and he says, hey, were you picking on my kids? And the guy says, yeah, they need to be taught a lesson to keep their mouth shut. And I'll never forget this. Mr. Bodie straightens up, points his finger, and says, you leave them alone. They're with me. And Donnie and I saw it. Fear. Fear in the bully's eye. And we were just like, oh, snap. <laughs> He's afraid of Mr. Bodie. Like, oh, my goodness. We're fine. So we spent the rest of the day hanging out, trash-talking basketball teams. That's what the exodus is. 
In the story of the Exodus, Israel is stuck, and they're stuck under a terrible tyrant. The story of the Exodus, as it unfolds, it keeps pointing out Pharaoh is cruel. First off, he has them in slavery. That's a social injustice. It's evil and it's cruel. But not only that, he enjoys making them suffer. And he's cruel. And so these people are afraid for their lives. But not only that, the Exodus answers a question. The Exodus answers the question, is God powerful? Is God good? Like, why are we here? You know, God made a promise that he was going to save the world through us, through Israel, and now we're here enslaved, and we're enslaved for hundreds of years. Like, maybe, maybe Pharaoh claims he's a god. Maybe Pharaoh's more powerful than our god. Or, or maybe God's not good. Maybe God made a promise and just said, hey, peace out, guys. I'm just going to do my thing over here. Don't worry. You, you'll be fine. You won't be fine, but don't, no, I don't care. <laughs> that's, that's the question. Is God powerful, and is God good? And the Exodus shows up and blows that question out of the water. Yeah, God's powerful. And yeah, he's really good. So Moses, you, you probably know the story. Moses, is, he's a shepherd, and he's walking, and there's a burning bush. And God appears to Moses in that burning bush, and he says this. This is Exodus 3, starting in verse 6. God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then God says this. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When God says, I know their sufferings, that's not intellectually. He's not saying, I, 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 they're suffering, right? That, that word for know means experientially. God understands our suffering. Our suffering hurts God. And so he says to Moses, Moses, buckle your seatbelt. I'm going to go Mr. Bodie, the bullies. And that's exactly what he does. So you know the Exodus. Moses rolls up into town, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way. And so there's these series of plagues. We need to understand the plagues a little differently. Some of you just think they're kind of random, like, uh, what do we do next? Uh, hail! What about next? Boils! Like, it's, they're just totally random, but they're not. What's going on in the Exodus is God is taking down the thing that Pharaoh fears, his gods, and then he ultimately takes down the god, Pharaoh himself. So, um, Egypt had all these gods, and they, they were on like a... Uh, a ladder, basically, of power. And God starts at the very bottom of that ladder, and he takes them out one at a time till he finally gets to the top of that ladder, Pharaoh. And before we look at these, we're going to look at the plagues and see God's power in the plagues. But before we do that, I just want to say, I understand this is 2017. We're Westerners, and it's very easy to look down our nose to people in idolatry. Like, man, these Egyptians were they're very primitive. Why don't they know like that? It's just a, you know, the, the Nile floods because of seasonal, uh, I don't know why the Nile floods, but you know, the Nile, it's a natural occurrence. <laughs> yeah. I went to seminary and I, I didn't really pay attention in college. <laughs> but before we look down our noses at the Egyptians for their idolatry, let me just say this. When the Bible defines an idol, we, we think of an idol as something like a wooden statue that we bow down to. That's not how the Bible defines an idol. The Bible defines an idol as anything we look to for significance or security. And so God goes to the things that 
Egypt is looking for significance and security, and he takes them out to say, I'm more powerful. What are you going to do? Okay, so let's look at that. The very first, there's ten plagues, but there's two miracles around the ten plagues. There's a snake, and then there's also the parting of the Red Seas. We read the parting of the Red Seas, but uh, the first thing that when Moses rolls into town, he shows up to Pharaoh, and he says, hey, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, who are you? I don't care. And so Pharaoh drops Aaron's rod, and the rod turns into a snake. And then um, the Hebrew text is really clear from, like, uh, trickery and from all, like, an illusion. Illusions, Michael. Um, Thank you, the three of you that got that. Um, got, uh, the, I lost my train of thought. The magicians <laughs> turn, they're, they're able to make snakes too. And you're like, what's, what's going on with these snakes? This is super random. Well, if you look at any Egyptian art or hieroglyphics or even like Pharaoh, how he has the snake on his hat, um, the snake was a symbol of power. Uh, it's a desert nation. Snakes are terrifying. It's, even if it's not a desert nation, snakes are terrifying. And so, by Pharaoh saying, I'm the one who controls the snake. I'm more powerful than this really terrifying thing. It's a power move. And God says, I just ate your snakes. What now, Pharaoh? And Pharaoh looks at that, and that's an opportunity. What's going on is God saying, let him go, let him go. And Pharaoh says, no, not going to do it. He digs his heels in the sand. So God starts upping the ante more and more and more. Where do we go next? The next day, Pharaoh's on the Nile. And again, desert nation, uh, doesn't rain a lot there, so the Nile and the flooding of the Nile is how they get sustenance. And this, this God's name is really easy to remember. They had a God named Happy, H-A-P-Y. He was the God of Nile flooding, and he was the one that gave them water, which provided for food. Moses says, hey, you're going to let my people go? You know God's powerful. You know he's on their side. Are you going to let them go so they can worship that God? Mm-mm. All right. Turns the Nile to blood, saying, Happy lived at the bottom of the Nile, and it was like an image of, like, I just stabbed Happy, and he bled out into your Nile. God's like, I'm more powerful than your gods. Are you going to keep messing with me? Pharaoh, yeah, I'm going to keep messing. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show my power now. I'm going to say, hey, Israelites, you have to make more bricks. I'm making your work harder. Oh, and I'm not even going to give you straw for those bricks. Just shows the heart of Pharaoh. He's a cruel, cruel tyrant. And so we walk through the plagues. The Egyptians had a, a frog god who guarded a gate full of frogs. It was a symbol of fertility. God kills the guardian of that gate, and the frogs run free. No control. Skip a couple plagues. The second most powerful um, god in Egypt, and if you've seen the movie The Prince of Egypt, it's like a song, but it's Ra. So Ra was the sun god. Um, actually, some scholars believe that the pyramids are uh, supposed to be rays of the sun coming down to bless the earth, because that's how powerful the sun was. Um, god shuts the light out. And he says, you guys, you guys need to look to me. I'm the powerful one, not Ra. And Pharaoh, this is all working its way to Pharaoh himself. And that's the showdown we just read. God says, are you going to let my people go? Mm-mm. Pharaoh finally does. Whatever, get out of here. But then he changes his mind. And he pursues after them. And in this amazing scene of power, the most mighty military in the world against helpless women, men, women, and children with no weapons and the ocean behind them, God splits the ocean, uses it to save Israel, and the very thing he used to save Israel, he uses to beat up the bully and ultimately kill the bully. God sets Israel free with power and with grace. Israel couldn't do anything to save themselves. They were stuck under a terrible tyrant. God shows up and says, I'm on your side. I'm here to save you. Look at my power. So now that we see the power and grace of God in the Exodus, we need to see that same power and that same grace applied to us. So 
A lot of people think this. When we look at the Bible, we think, oh, the God of the New Testament, he's a God of grace. He's really nice. We like that God. The God of the Old Testament, oof, he's kind of, he's kind of scary. He's got wrath. He's, he's angry all the time. Like, what do we do? The Exodus shows that idea is ridiculous. God has always saved his people by grace. He's always been a God of grace. And so the God of the Exodus, Jesus says, I'm that same God come to rescue you. And it's an invitation. Join my Exodus as I lead my people home. Just like that Exodus, I'm here to do the same exact thing. And now you might be thinking like, well, where does, where does the New Testament say that? In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 31, there's this amazing, amazing event that's recorded. Uh, it's the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is up on the mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah appear. And the English text, it's harder to see in the English text, but listen to what it says. This is the ESV. It says, um, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. If you look, if you have the ESV, the, it has a footnote. You can tell how nerdy I am right here. But the footnote actually says the Greek word is Exodus. Jesus, Moses and Elijah show up, and they start talking with Jesus about the Exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. See, just like Israel had a terrible tyrant, you and I have a terrible tyrant. And that terrible tyrant is sin. And just like we, Israel was helpless to save themselves, you and I are helpless to save ourselves from our terrible tyrant. But that's not the end of the sentence. Jesus shows up with power and with grace to save his people. Um, now, I, let me just say for a second, I feel, I feel kind of the, like, wait a second. You're saying I'm enslaved to sin? Like, listen, listen. I may not be, like, the perfect citizen. A slave? Really? And let me just say I feel that too. I don't like to think of myself like that. I'm, listen, I'm a pretty good husband. I'm a pretty good dad. I'm an okay pastor. But a slave? Really? Listen to Jesus. Jesus says a lot of hard things, and as a church, we don't want to shy away from them. We want to try to understand them. So this is Jesus in John's gospel, John 8, 34. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. What Jesus is doing here is he's not showing up to make you feel bad. He's showing up to say, hey, this is the condition that you're in. And let's try to understand that a little bit. There's a pastor in Philadelphia um, go birds. I see. I know you guys. There you are. Um, there's a pastor in Philadelphia who makes this statement that I think is really easy to help us understand this. This is what Pastor Paul Tripp says right here about sin being slavery. He says this, sin causes us to place ourselves in the center of our world. Sin defines life in relationship to my wants, my needs, and my feelings. The claustrophobic confines of my wants, my needs, and my feelings is a world so small only one person can live in it. So just like we talked about idolatry, and idolatry really is synonymous with sin. An idol is looking at something and, giving it, and getting your significance and your security from that. And yeah, we may not do that with like wooden statues, but we can do that with all kinds of things. Money. We all know how we can get security from money. Like, we feel really safe when we have a lot of it. But how do we get our significance from money? So imagine, imagine this for a second. None of you in here, but you probably know somebody that may get their significance from money. And they look around. They say, I think I have more money than this guy. I matter. 
And they, they, want, they want you to know, like, I've got, I'm pretty important. I have all this significance and money gives it to me. The Bible says that's slavery. And it's not just money. It can be anything. We can look to any plethora of things for significance and security other than God. And God is good and gracious and won't let us live in that slavery. Because here's, here's what the, the truth is. We're created to live in big sky country. Everybody in this room was created to live in relationship with God and with others in perfect harmony. But what sin does is sin just whoop, makes your world so small. So small that only you can live in it, what Pastor, Pastor Tripp says. And Jesus shows up and says, hey, you're enslaved. I'm here to set you free. Come with me to big sky country. God's kingdom is good. Follow me. How does he do that? How does he show that he's more powerful? He shows up in power. Luke 11 records this statement. Jesus had just casted out some demons. And this is one of my favorite verses in the Gospels. They're questioning him about him casting out demons. And so he says to them, um, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of darkness has no power over Jesus. None at all. He's able to cast out the kingdom of darkness with his finger effortlessly. You all know the story in John chapter 6 when Jesus is headed across the sea of Galilee with his disciples. He's asleep and a storm comes. The Greek says that Jesus just woke up and said, literally, shut up and goes back to sleep. He's got power over nature. He shows up in power and he also shows up in grace. In the book of Titus, Titus is uh, one of Paul's assistants and he left in a, in a pretty wild town and he says this he says describing how jesus saves us by his grace he says for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days with malice and envy hated by others and hating one another isn't that kind of a grace in and of itself paul doesn't just throw everybody look at all you sinners he throws himself in there with it he says we we ourselves were this and then he says this but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out to us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Just like Israel, we had a terrible tyrant, and we couldn't do anything to get out. But Jesus shows up in power he says, I'm the same God who rescued my people. I'm here for you. He invites you to join that exodus. Do you see why that's, that's way better than just suggestions? Hey, is your tank spiritually empty? Why don't you just do these 10 things? Read your Bible more. Wake up early. Be present. Join a community group. Those are all good things. Like, don't, don't misunderstand me. Those are means of grace in your life. But if you come to God empty with this, what do I do? What do I do? I need to be filled. Give me something to do. That's a bottomless pit. But the gospel sets us free from that bottomless pit. Jesus shows up and says, come on, guys, come with me. I'm here to take you somewhere better. It's dangerous to drive around on E. If anybody knows that, it's my dad. My dad is a mechanic, and his own philosophy about cars is this. If you spent $2,000 or more on a car, you probably got ripped off. 
When you narrow your field of options by so much, you end up driving around pretty interesting cars. So in high school, I had a car, my first car was a 1994 Dodge Shadow, and it had a hole in the door, and I had to rivet a sign to the side of the car to like close that hole off, because my dad got it, it was a steal, nobody wanted it. <laughs> Here's the thing, like when you're really cheap with cars, there's a common problem that when that problem hits, people don't want that car anymore, and it's a broken gas gauge. Like, people get rid of it. So my dad has all these cars with broken gas gauges. And so my childhood is littered with memories of the phone rings, it's my dad, he's somewhere crazy, and he needs us to pick him up because he ran out of gas. One time, my dad told me a story that he was in a 1967 GTO with a broken gas gauge, ran out of gas uh, when he was going down a hill, so he swerves into oncoming traffic, you know, gets in between two cars and then pulls into a gas station because being the cheap man he is, he didn't want to push the car. <laughs> My dad knows the danger of driving around on E. Actually, just a side note, when I called him, I was like, hey, Dad, do you have any crazy stories about running out of gas? And he just laughed and was like, where are you and why did you run out of gas? And I was like, <laughs> Dad, it's for a sermon. <laughs> but it's... Some of you came into this room on E. Some of you came in this room, and you may not be on E, but life is just weighing down on you, and it's hard. What are you going to do to fill your spiritual tank? You're going to do stuff? It won't work. I try. I do this every day. I forget I have this powerful, gracious Savior, and I'm just like, all right, what do I do? What do I do? Give me something to do. I can fix this. Mm-mm. Jesus says this, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. As a church, we're not here to just peddle advice. We don't want to give people systems. We want to give people a savior. We offer a redeemer. That's what Christianity is. At the heart of Christianity, it's not a set of do this, don't do that. It's, hey, here's someone who came for you. Know him. Know him. I've really been... Lately, I, I'm, I, I think I'm like an 80-year-old at heart, and so I've been listening to a lot of hymns lately. Um, I think hymns are beautiful. It's like the poetry of the church, and there's hymns about just about everything. And there's one hymn. We're talking this morning about the God who fights for us, so I found a hymn. It's called the Battle Hymn, Battle Hymn of the Republic. And it says this. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. He died to make men holy. Let us live to make men free. Our God is marching on. That's who we sing to today. We sing to the God who fights for us. We don't, our emptiness cannot ever, ever be satisfied by anything we do. Let's sing to that God right now. Let's continue worshiping, okay? Okay.